Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 7. We'll look at the first 10 verses today. One of the most basic principles of Bible study is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Our task is never to come up with some creative way to understand the Bible. Our task is always to ascertain how the Bible understands itself. For if God is the divine author behind all that is written in all of these books, then it is one consistent whole, with each part illuminating the others. That's the principle that drives good Bible study. And the result is often wonderful insight into what God has spoken. But the practice of that principle, the struggle to understand exactly what the scripture is saying about itself, that is frequently a very difficult task. And that's exactly what we find in Hebrews chapter 7. Here we see the New Testament shedding light on an obscure Old Testament reference. And at the same time, here we see a shadowy figure of a a man named Melchizedek in that Old Testament reference teaching us about Jesus. Our task is to listen and understand how it all fits together. So let me read it, the first ten verses, Hebrews 7. This Melchizedek, was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. And we'll stop there. It's a difficult text to know quite how to preach, and it's part of the larger context which uh, uh, overlaps, and uh, so we'll get into some more of this next week. But let me just uh, talk about two things. First, a very uh, basic thing, and that is that Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus. Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus. While we were down in uh, California at our friend's home, I saw this beautiful poncho that, I think that's what it's called, a beautiful poncho that was woven by a Mexican woman who was a friend of our friends. Most of the piece was a simple pattern of different colors of thread woven together on a loom. 
a pretty straight line, straight pattern. One could hardly, hardly distinguish one thread from another. They kind of all were woven tightly together. But then at the top of this piece, around the neck area, suddenly those individual threads burst into embroidered flowers in each of the individual colors. What was once just another thread in the pattern suddenly became the focus of the whole piece. Now, that's kind of what is happening in the story of Melchizedek. When we read the brief account of his life in Genesis 14, it's just another day in the history of, of Abraham's life. For the it focuses all on Abraham, not on Melchizedek. But then when we come to Hebrews 7, that little nondescript strand of history suddenly burst into this extravagant description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now some of you may have hardly ever heard of Melchizedek, so if we're going to understand this whole chapter, both today and what we get into next week and maybe even the following, we need to acquaint ourselves with this ancient figure a little bit. We hear of Melchizedek, as far as the historical account, in just one place, and that's, he, that's a Genesis chapter 14, uh, part of the account of uh, Abraham's life. Rather than reading the whole chapter, because <clears throat> it has a lot of names in it of different kings that I can't pronounce very well either, let me just give you a brief summary. You remember, remember Abraham's nephew Lot was with him, and uh, they, they got into some conflicts because of their flocks and their herdsmen. And so Lot uh, separated, and Abraham said, take whatever part of the land you want. And Lot chose this fertile plain down by the city of Sodom. And there he went. But life soon took an unexpected turn for the worse for Lot. For a nearby king, and of, uh, uh, a nearby king led a coalition of other kings, and they came and attacked Sodom and overthrew it and took Lot and a bunch of others as captives. Well, when the word of Lot's capture came to Abram, he gathered up his armed men, enlisted the help of some of his neighbors, and went and attacked that king, freeing Lot and the others. And after he did, he was about to head home. And suddenly he encountered a man named Melchizedek. We read it in Genesis 14, 18. Then Melchizedek, King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. This is surely a strange event. Melchizedek was totally unknown before this, as far as we can tell, and totally unheard of after this. Yet he was clearly sent from God to bless Abraham. He was a priest serving the true God. And because Abraham recognized him as such, Abraham responded by paying a tithe of everything he had, uh, presumably the plunder of the, of the wars he just won. And then afterward, Abraham went back home, and Melchizedek disappeared from the account of Abraham's life. Now, the significance of all of this would have just remained one of those mysteries of history, except that in Psalm 10, the Spirit brings it up again. 
In that psalm, King David is telling of the greatness of the Messiah to come, who would be both his royal son, son of David, and David's Lord. Great mystery. Jesus talks about that sometimes. But then the psalm goes even further, noting that this messianic king, David's Lord, would also be a priest. Not a priest from the lineage of Aaron, but a priest from the order of Melchizedek. That statement is presented as a promise to the Messiah when he comes. There we read, you, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So once again, this mention of Melchizedek becomes a mystery. But by the time the New Testament was written, there came to be great speculation on the part of the Jewish scholars concerning this Melchizedek and his significance. In fact, some have suggested that Hebrews chapter 7 may have been written as a Christian response to the controversy going on in the Jewish community of how to explain this thread of history, how it developed into this prediction of the Messiah. For in Melchizedek, God gave us a clue of what Jesus would be. Melchizedek foreshadowed Jesus. That's the basic truth. But what exactly do we learn from Jesus, from the appearance of Melchizedek? Well, that's what I want us to explore in our second point. And that is that Melchizedek points us to Jesus' uniqueness. Melchizedek points us to Jesus' uniqueness. You know, throughout history, people have always tried to pigeonhole Jesus, to make him fit some existing category. During his earthly ministry, we hear it again and again. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Or, he must be a prophet, trying to fit him somewhere. It goes on even to this day. Some, some consider Jesus one of the many great thinkers of history and the teachers of history. Others consider him to be uh, 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 one of the founders of the world's great religions. For others, he's simply another fraud and uh, another religious charlatan. Everybody tries to pigeonhole him. But here in Hebrews 7, through the kind, though the kind of reasoning uh, that, goes, that takes place here sounds a bit strange to our ears, the author is showing that Melchizedek points to Jesus' uniqueness. One of a kind. I see four examples of that here, so let me just give you my four examples. The first is this. Jesus is unique because he's both king and priest. We see this right in verse 1. For Melchizedek was both king of Salem and priest of God Most High. In the first century, uh, in first century Judaism, Psalm 110 had stirred up quite a controversy, as we said. Was the Messiah to be a king, or was the Messiah to be a priest? The Dead Sea community, where we read something about that controversy, thought that there would probably be two different messianic figures. There would be a kingly Messiah and a priestly Messiah. For otherwise, how could all the prophecies be fulfilled? (laughs) But God had this forerunner already on the books back in Genesis 14, 
to show us how one could be the king and the priest. And the promise of uh, Psalm 110 is that Jesus follows in the order of Melchizedek. He points us to Jesus' uniqueness. The second thing, Jesus is unique, for he's both our righteousness and our peace. Melchizedek's name and title have great significance. Melchizedek, the word, the name Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And then the word Salem, or Jerusalem, is a word that means peace. So he's also king of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. So how does that point us to Jesus? Well, that's exactly the prophecies concerning Jesus. He was to be, according to what Isaiah writes, the righteous branch, whose name is the Lord our righteousness. Or or an even more familiar passage in Isaiah 9, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government, for he is the king, and peace, there would be no end. He will reign on David's throne, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Righteousness and peace, peace and righteousness. Who could possibly fill these shoes? Both the king and the priest, the king of righteousness, one who will presumably make war against all evil to remove it. And the king of peace who will end all war. Where is any precedent for such a one? Surely the Jews thought this must be more than one person. No, it's the one prefigured by Melchizedek 2,000 years earlier. Melchizedek simply points us to the uniqueness of the Messiah King, who is our priest, the King of righteousness and of peace. Third thing, Jesus is unique, for he has a perpetual priesthood. We're going to hear more about this uh, later on in this chapter, about the difference between Jesus' perpetual priesthood and the Levitic priesthood, which, uh, which uh, dies off all the time. Verse 3 makes a very cryptic statement about Melchizedek. It says he is without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. People have done great things with this little passage. But that does not necessarily mean that every fantastic thing somebody has come up with is true. This does not mean that Melchizedek had no parents. Even Jesus, who is eternal, had parents. He was born of a human mother. He had a genealogy. This does not mean that Melchizedek must be an angelic being. Indeed, he is said to be the king of a particular geographical area, Salem. Nor does it mean that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of of Christ, the Son. No, it specifically says he's like the Son, not that he is the Son. Nor does it mean, in uh, an almost humorous sense, that he was unmarried, that Melchizedek was unmarried and childless, and therefore the clergy ought to be celibate, as Jerome and some other uh, medieval leaders thought. No, that's not what Melchizedek, uh, having uh, no genealogy, is about. The point is much simpler. In Genesis, we see endless lists of genealogies. 
In fact, if you ever decided you're going to read your Bible this year and you start reading, you get four chapters in, and all of a sudden, you're mired down in genealogies. But as Philip Hughes points out in those chapters of the book of Genesis, Melchizedek is the only personage above the wor- among the worshipers of the true God whose ancestry and descendants receive no mention. Quite a contrast from the Levitic priests, whose genealogies were carefully kept so that they could prove their credentials as priests. Remember, after, ba- after the Babylonian captivity, if you could not show your genealogy and prove that you were from a priestly family, you couldn't function as a priest. So was it a big accident that somehow Melchizedek's genealogy didn't get recorded and preserved? That we know nothing about where he came from or who his descendants were? Well, John Calvin didn't think so. He writes, it must not be thought to be an omission, either by accident or by lack of thought, that he has given no family connection and that there is no word about his death. The truth is, the Spirit has done this purposely so as to elevate him for us above the common herd of man. You see, God is painting a picture of Jesus' unending ministry so we can be assured that these claims about Jesus are not some kind of wild-eyed fantasies, for we know he is exactly what God intended to be, intended his Messiah to be, back in the account of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is pointing to the unique, perpetual ministry of Jesus. Finally, the fourth way that Jesus is unique. He's unique, for he's even greater than Abraham. For the Jews, everything went back to Abraham. Abraham was the father of the nation. The land was given to Abraham. He was the father of the patriarchs. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. The 12 tribes were his descendants, his grandsons. He was the one with whom God made a covenant. There's no one greater than Abraham. But here we're reminded of Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. And in that encounter, two things happened. Melchizedek blessed Abraham... And Abraham, in turn, paid a tithe, 10% of what he had, to Melchizedek. Now, both of those things teach us one great truth. And this truth, actually, is the key to this whole chapter. This whole discussion about Christ's priesthood. Both of these things, the blessing and the tithe, indicate that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. Verses 4 to 10 prove that to us. How does Melchizedek's blessing Abraham prove that he's greater than Abraham? Well, look at verse 7. Without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In other words, God doesn't ask you to bless him. He blesses you because he's greater than you. Similarly, Abraham's tithing proves that Melchizedek was greater than he was. Look at verse 4. Just think how great Melchizedek was 
Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Well, once again, you don't levy taxes on a king. He requires them of you. The lesser pays tribute to the greater. That's how it works. So God required all the tribes to pay tithes to the Levites who work in the temple. And then he required the Levites in turn to pay tithes to the priests who were in charge of the temple and ministered in the holy place. So when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, it was an admission on his part that Melchizedek, the king priest of the living God, was greater than he. Abraham was required to humble himself before the Lord's king, the Lord's priest. And that's what he did. Melchizedek points us to Jesus' greatness for he's even greater than Father Abraham. Actually, our text doesn't even stop there. It makes a further crucial point. Look at verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. The point is not only was Melchizedek greater than, Levi, greater than Father Abraham and Jesus greater than Melchizedek, His point is that all the Levites who collected tithes had actually paid tithes to Melchizedek, for they were still in the body of Abraham when he honored Melchizedek. In this text, the writer of Hebrews makes a powerful point. He establishes that Christ's priesthood is legitimate because it has precedent in the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he shows Jesus to be greater than the Levites and the priests of Jesus' day, even greater than Abraham, the father of all the Jewish nation. But here, as the author does that, he also cuts the legs out from under those Jews who rejected Jesus. This text takes away the argument that Jesus could not be our priest because he's not a Levite. It takes away the notion that Jesus is insignificant because he was not received by the priests and Levites. So what? He was greater than they. It shows that if you would logically, consistently follow the ways of the Levites, you would bow before Christ, as their father Abraham had bowed before Melchizedek. It shows that if you reject Christ, your allegiance to the Levites and the the functions of the law mean nothing, for he is greater than they are. It shows that if you turn away from Jesus for the sake of the Jewish ritual, the Levitical priesthood, you've denied the faith of your father Abraham. Melchizedek, almost hidden in ancient history, points us to the unique glory of the Messiah, Jesus. Well, we're not finished with Melchizedek. We come back into the, right into the middle of this discussion again next time. But in the meantime, think of the profound things uh, found here. Jesus is a king and a priest like none other. He is the king of both righteousness and peace. Jesus' priesthood is perpetual. He lives forever. And everything that proceeds from Abraham, the whole nation, the law, the priesthood, the temple, everything that comes from Abraham, is subject 
to this Messiah, king, priest, foreshadowed by Melchizedek. Dear people, many of us grew up on Bible stories of Jesus, and we know them well. May I suggest there's much more to know. This is the one that the whole Bible was talking about. This is the one that Genesis 14 is talking about in this one little section about this one character that never has heard of before or after. It's about Jesus. There's a lot we don't know yet about him. He is the only hope we have. He is both our priest who intercedes for us and our king who is our sovereign and rules. This morning I call you to give yourself anew to knowing this Jesus and all of his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there's so many things we don't know and we try to understand what uh, you tell us in the scripture and it's hard for us to get our minds around it to see uh, what it means. So help us, Lord. Help us to not settle for a kindergarten-level knowledge of you when you've shown us so much, but to be willing to use the brains that you've given us and and the curiosity that you've given us to dig deep and understand more and more about you and and the wonderful gospel, the plan of salvation that has come to fulfillment in Jesus. Thank you for such a Savior. Thank you for such a high priest interceding for us. Thank you for such a king who is worthy of our allegiance. Oh, Lord, may we uh, trust you and follow you with all of our heart. In Christ's name we pray, amen.